Yeah, where's it coming from? Let's find out. Welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and with me is Morgana. Tonight, we're welcoming Barbara Mango. She's an experiencer. She's been an experiencer since childhood, and she's also an author. Hello, Barbara. Hi, Morgana. Hi, Barbara. How are you? We're pretty good. Good to see you. I feel like I'm talking to myself. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me on the show. We're really excited to have you. Thank you for coming. We met you when um, Brent Rains had us on his show last time, last month, and you were such an interesting person and we had such similar experiences that we really wanted to talk with you a little bit more in depth because on that interview, we had three, six people. Yeah. So that was, yeah, hard. It was hard to, you know, everybody get a chance to talk. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you first discovered you had unusual experiences? I had my first experience when I was two years old. And the thing is, to me, it wasn't unusual, I guess. I, um, from the time I can remember, um, I just, I just felt different. Um, I don't know if I was one of those people that came into this lifetime with with some attachment to the past, the past a past life. But I always felt very, very connected to something bigger than I was that I couldn't quite put my finger on. And being two, you know, I can only process this in a, a toddler's manner. But I knew I was different. And and what so my my entire framework and going forward throughout my life was based on what happened to me when I was two. Um, I had my own room and I used to go in there to play a lot. I, I played a lot alone and I had, you know, everybody, every kid has those little play tables, you know, you have your tea parties, your dolls, the whole thing. So whenever I would go into my room, starting about two and we lived um, in New York at the time. So it was an apartment in New York and I would go in my my little table and sit down, do my little kid stuff. A woman would just suddenly appear to me. She would sit across. She would just be there. She would come in, sit across from me at my table. And, and I never questioned it. I mean, to me, it was like, oh, there's a woman. She was extremely tall. And I was only two. So, you know, everybody's tall, but much taller than the adults in my life. She was Native American. She had long really beautiful, shiny, dark hair parted in the middle. And every time she appeared, which was quite often, she always wore the same clothing. She had um, like a long sleeve kind of, I don't know, not burlap, but you know, a rough material, a shirt with long sleeves. She had something that to me looked like a denimish kind of ankle length skirt with a lot of beads. She had a beautiful beaded belt and beaded earrings and bracelets. And I just thought she was the most gorgeous thing. 
And, and like I said, I would go in there, sit at my table and she would be there. And that was normal to me. I mean, that was as normal as getting up and having a bowl of cereal. Um, and the first time she appeared, she told me her name was, I still have trouble pronouncing this. I believe she pronounced it Lulani, but I couldn't say that as a two-year-old. I had a lot of trouble. So I called her Luli. And so she was my friend, Luli. And I remember that when she'd visit, she would just sit there at first and smile at me. And it's very loving, beautiful, um, just complete acceptance. And she started talking to me and it was telepathic conversations. And yet again, I, you know, there was a part of me that, that understood even at that age, this is weird. You know, like I had some understanding that two-year-olds are supposed to sit there and, you know, like take naps and play with dolls and, you know, <laughs> maybe string like four words together. And here I was having these telepathic conversations with a woman that just came from nowhere, but it, it made perfect sense to me. I understood everything she was saying. I spoke back to her telepathically. And I do remember, although, of course, I don't have you know, comprehensive memories of our conversation, but she would talk to me about really big concepts. Um, she would explain the universe and the solar system and where she came from. And um, I guess in a, in a way that I could understand at the time, consciousness. So I don't remember, I, I could never tell you like verbatim what our conversations were, but I came away from that experience knowing that somehow I had the ability or it was my norm to be able to communicate with other beings that weren't from our dimension and that we didn't need words to communicate. And I was somehow able to understand and uh, comprehend information that was way beyond my years. Um, and the, I think the most important thing by far that she gave me is I came from a very uh, difficult home life. Um, I didn't receive much love. And Luli really gave me the most wonderful, um, beautiful, unconditional love. And I think that was one of her main purposes in coming to me to, to not only teach me these other amazing things, but she served a really big purpose in my life. I knew I was loved at, at some level. And so from that point, you know, I think I just started my life off looking at things differently. You know, how can you not, right? And yeah. It kind of went from there. She sounds like a lovely, lovely person. Where did she say she was from? Well, here's I'm very the, curious about there, here's the thing. And and this 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 was very weird to me. And okay, we were living in a suburb of New York City. It's called Mount Vernon, New York. All right. Oh, yeah. You're right. Okay. So I remember asking Luli where she was from because I knew she wasn't from this time. You know, I knew she was from the past, but I didn't know where. And she told me Mount Vernon. So I, I remember just saying, wait, wait a minute. Am I imagining it? Okay. Maybe I'm making this up because, like, the, you know, come on. And I remember going into my mother, and this is the only, the first and only time that I ever shared any experience with my mom, because I never had, 
I never had one. I thought, oh, she's my mom, you know, cool. I can talk to her. I can share this. And she said, oh, you know, you're making that up. You know, you have a really big imagination. It, it's, a, it's a pretend playmate. And then she said, where did she say she was from? I said, Mount Vernon. She started laughing. She goes, well, we live in Mount Vernon. So, but, you know, the experience was realer than real. I mean, it was so just astonishing real. I I believed it. I never, I actually really refused to let go of the reality of it. And, and I would say about 10 years ago, I started researching Native Americans in New York. And there was a just an enormous number of tribes on Long Island and in that area of New York. And they're actually, and I cannot remember the name of the tribe, but there was a large tribe in Mount Vernon. So I was like, oh, thank God, you know, <laughs> I wasn't crazy. And, and so I, you know, it, it made sense to me, it didn't make sense to my mom, but you know, it certainly made sense to me. That's really interesting. Yeah. When, when you said that she said she was from Mount Vernon, I'm like, there's so many um, Iroquois Confederation tribes up there that she could have been from any of them. There was, you know, the, the Muncie, Delaware there, which that's where Muncie, Indiana. Yeah. Muncie, Indiana got its name. It's after they were forced West and they settled there and that's where that name came from. But they were originally in New York. Um, I just read a book about uh, the strange happenings in the Hudson River Valley. And one of the things that uh, the author talks about is all of the different tribes that are there, and that were there, and some are still there. And there's a huge number of the Eastern Woodland tribes in that area. So, and what what you described, what she was wearing sounded like it was after colonization by the Europeans, because it sounds like it was homespun cloth. Yes. That's the impression and I got. Yeah. That's what it sounds like it was. And a lot of the Eastern tribes did switch to using trade cloth once um, the Europeans settled. So that's really interesting. Wow, I'm I wish I knew that. For you. <laughs> I'm sorry, Morgana? I said, I'm glad she was there for you, too. Like, <sighs> it's, it's hard to be two years old and not have people understand you. It yeah. was very, very hard. Um, and that's, that's actually one of um, the driving forces for me to write this book, um, was the sense of being different and how to navigate through life when you are different. Um, and I especially relate this to children experiencers because you are very lucky if you have a support system. I didn't happen to have that. And it's, you know, it's a real challenge to, um, to have these experiences, not be able to share them, have to stifle yourself and, um, and continue to believe that what your experiences is real and you're not crazy. You know, so she was a fantastic presence in my life at that time. It's exactly what I needed. How you long know. was she uh, part of your life? Well, 
You know, it's strange. She, I was, I believe I was around two when she first started appearing and we lived in Mount Vernon, New York. And then my father accepted a job in Kansas City, Missouri. That was, you know, a, a better uh, position. So we moved to Kansas City and I do not recall her visiting me there. I don't know if it's because I assume it's because I had learned what I had needed to learn from her. Obviously, she wasn't confined by space or time. So that's my take is that, you know, I had gotten what I needed to. And um, so our visits were, you know, discontinued. Uh, But I had that base. And that's what was really important to me. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how many because I I had a companion at one point in my childhood um, that was not a cool Native American lady. It was a very tiny, very very tiny, dragony looking thing. Like if if you mixed a dinosaur with a dragon, um, that I initially thought was real, and then I started wondering if it wasn't. Except other people could see it too. Oh, wow. Um, And I was around 11 when that appeared. And other people saw it as little sparkles of light, like in a rough outline. Right. Um, But I saw it as, as as an entity. And it sort of performed a similar function. Yeah, because that was, that was a time period when you needed a, uh, a helper. Yeah. And it, it was, she, she was sort of a best friend slash spirit guide, sort of. Um, you know, we would we would also talk mind to mind, and I was old enough that I knew what like invisible friends were, and I was old enough to realize this was deeply strange. But I was also just like, whatever, I'm rolling with it. I've seen enough weird things, and you know, mom's an experiencer. Um, and my dad is an experiencer and our whole family's odd. So I, I was just like, we're just going to go with it. <laughs> we're just going to roll with this as being real. And I was really happy that some of my friends could see something too. So that helped with the feeling like I was crazy. Though there, yeah. were, there were other things that made me wonder back then. <laughs> yeah, at that time... <laughs> At that time, she didn't live with me. Um, Her father and I uh, divorced when she was about two. Um, And uh, he ended up with custody through much trauma, drama, and legal shenanigans and barely legal shenanigans um, that we won't go into now. But around the age of 11 is, is when life got really hard for Morgana. And that's when we started working on regaining custody, but it was a very slow process. And, um, it was, it was a really good time for her to have a little spirit friend because I, you know, couldn't exactly be there every day. And so, she she had support from a little outside source. I do think that whatever 
the the other things are i i like to use the phrase the other because i i don't know what these entities are <laughs> i would love to but i don't i do think they they like to look after children i think yeah, a lot of i i agree and i think um i do believe that and again, entities, beings, you know, there's so many interchangeable terms. They're aware, you know, they're intelligent, they're loving, and they're aware. I think we have the sensitivities to be aware of them, right? And I think maybe our, our um, we're wired differently, we come in differently, maybe at a higher vibration, and we attract them. And at the same time, they know that we can see them you know it's sort of a meeting but I agree with you and, and I think it it can be almost life-saving I and mean, that may be a little strong but um it's it's just it's really healing did you find that as well like emotionally healing I did yeah um it was you know I'd have a hard day of it and then I would like it would she would curl up on my chest and it was like a steady warmth Oh, wow. And like a humming that she would do. And it was extremely soothing and pleasant. And we would just, we would just talk. Um, you were also the first person I've told about this on the podcast. So oh. very special. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Um, no, I think you shared with us. It's beautiful. No, it, it's beautiful because, you know, I, I think so many people, well, not us, obviously, but so many people would laugh or scoff or invalidate that kind of story. Um, but, you know, it's just, I think so much of it is about also what you get from it, how it heals you emotionally, physically, spiritually, um, just just the love that it, it's hard to put it into words, but it's such a vital thing. It's such a vital um presence you know i'm so mm -hmm. glad that you had that at that time see i i'm i've just my Same heart for you. my heart's warm <laughs> it feels like oh. feel so happy for you oh i'm happy you had yours too like i when kids are in rough situations we need something <laughs> mm -hmm. well we do and and i think we might have talked about this you know on when we were together with brand but you know, when I was researching this book, I had, I did my, my, completed my dissertation on near-death experiences. And one of the things that I found really interesting was the research of Kenneth Ring. And a small portion of his research devoted, was devoted to um, uh, experiencer type, you know, the type of person that tended to experience near, near death experiences and other spiritually transformative experiences. And when I was reading this, I was like, oh boy, check, 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 and check, because I fit every category. And and um, I think the, I, you know, they're not in any particular order, but basically they all kind of fall under the umbrella of difficult ch childhoods. Um, you know, uh, it could be a childhood that is abusive sexually, physically, emotionally. Uh, it can be a childhood in which one or more particular traumatic events happened, you know, like a, a sudden illness or, for example, my husband, when he was a child, his grandmother was living with them. He was in the room with her and she 
went into cardiac arrest and died in front of him. So he's not an experiencer. I'm just saying as an example, that is so traumatic to a child. So it can be one traumatic event. It can just be a home that's very chaotic. You know, maybe one parent is an alcoholic or something. And also, but see, this is like what came first, the egg or the chicken, right? And the, the fourth component are children who easily dissociate, right? They can just sort of, you know, zone out, you know, they're fantasy prone. So you say, well, are they zoning out? Because the zoning out or disassociation obviously is a psychological coping mechanism to help you deal with this kind of stress. But on the flip side, if you're able to easily disassociate, I think it brings you to that brain space where you can connect more easily with phenomena. So I was looking at this and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this makes sense. And I wanted to bring that into the book, but it, it ties in with everything you're saying, Morgana. And, you know, you've said, Barbara, and certainly with my life as well, you know, many other experiences I know. So I guess it's a blessing and a curse, you know, we have to go through that difficulty to, you know, maybe have these fantastic experiences. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of a lot of women I know who were abused as children. Um, I, I used to be an admin on a woman's bulletin board service that tells you how old I am. I've been on the internet since there were bulletin boards. And um, <laughs> that uh, a lot of the women I met there were abused as children. And then I noticed, oh, this is correlating with once we got comfortable enough to really talk with each other, we found out that lots, lots of us were psychic. Lots of us saw strange things or experienced odd things. Some of us had near-death experiences. Some of us could go out of body and all of these things. And I'm like, well, you know, I thought about it in my case and I didn't learn to do going out of body or anything like that until after I learned to dissociate. And that was very clearly connected with my mother's physical abuse. It was very, very clearly a case of me turning off my body so that I didn't feel things. And what I found, even as a young child, I discovered that... It wasn't just stopping feeling things. And it's interesting because a cousin told me how to do it. I had a cousin who was older than me who said, you know, you can turn off when they hit you. You can turn that off. And that was how I got the idea. I was like, how? And they were like, just turn it off. You know, because that makes sense to a kid. Well, you just do it. And so I did. And when I did that is when I realized that my attention was actually sort of floating away from my body. Yeah. And then I started realizing, oh, my self isn't necessarily connected to the body. Oh. And that's when I started seeing and experiencing more odd things, entities, lights, flashes of light, you know, 
beings of light oozing through the wall into my room. Um, that's when it started. And, and I was fairly clear from the beginning that it had something to do with what my cousin taught me to do, which is, well, just turn off the pain, just, just step out of it. Yeah. And, you know, well, that makes total sense. And, and that's why when I read this research, right, it so resounded mm -hmm. with me. And my, I had the same thing, you know, I had a very abusive mother, same thing, you know, very physically, but emotionally abusive, too. And I don't oh, yeah. remember ever, you know, I think it just happened naturally, you know, just I went, you know, and, and, and it's not always been a good thing because I still do it. And especially when I drive and I don't mean like most people space out. I shouldn't be telling people this, but I mean for like 20 <laughs> minutes, 20 minutes. And I'm like, Oh my God. And, and um, I mean, my family's afraid to drive with me and you know, I will sit there and I will say, okay, I'm going to focus. Okay. There's a tree. There's the gas station. A light's coming up. Okay. Stay focused. And literally within 30 seconds again, my, I'm gone. And, and I mean, I know I'm not crazy or nuts. Um, I hope this still falls within mild disassociation, but it's the same thing. I, I, you know, let's hope. Um, but, <laughs> but I think, I think it's just, you know, like it becomes hardwired into who we are. Right. And, um, I don't know. I wish I remembered the statistics, like the percentages. I don't remember them, but they are fairly high. Um, and that's really interesting, Barbara, that you you learned a technique to do that. I didn't know that was possible, you know, as a child. That's really interesting. Yeah. It, and it's weird that my cousin just kind of, you know, out of the blue said, you know, it doesn't have to hurt. And I was like, what? <laughs> because that's kind of a, yeah, right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. And, and, and she was like, no, just, just turn it off. But just I'm wondering, how did your cousin know to tell you that? Did she have a difficult childhood too? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It, you know, growing up where we did and when we did, hitting kids was just as natural as breathing, you know, and I don't even, you know, I don't even look down on most of my relatives because most of the time they weren't as horrible as, um, my mother was. And I Grandma knew it, was just mean. I knew I knew some kids growing up who had it way worse than me. In fact, for years, I was like, well, I was never abused as a child. My mom just hit me and yelled at me a lot and called me names. Well, duh. Yeah. Um, that's, that's abuse. Silly. You know, <laughs> duh. It took me going to a therapist and having a therapist go, you know, that's kind of the, the, that's the, that's the definition of abuse. I don't yeah. know. Oh, really? Oh, you know, and uh, so she she too had had, you know, been hit and 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 mistreated. But it was so culturally ingrained where we were that I don't think anybody even thought about it. But my mom was exceptionally mean and she was a very unhappy and angry person. So she she went above and beyond the call of duty, I think. 
Wow. We were talking about childhood and trauma. And one of the things that I was thinking about while mom was talking about her cousin was I wonder if there isn't, if there's not just a specific personality type that just knows that people need to hear things and just knows how to dissociate sort of as a hardwired thing and it's just something you do. Um, which I know you talked about that in your book. And would you would you talk about it some more? Yeah, well, um, I, I only can really, I, I can talk from my own experience the best. And I, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, I think it's environmental. I think it's genetic. Um, and I know I keep saying this, but it's, you know, I try to make, there's some really complex um, physics that are just, you know, I even try to grasp the quantum physics. It's like so difficult, but I, but I just call it a higher vibrational field on whether that's genetic or whether, um, you know, we're, it's just hardwired before we even come here. I don't know, but I those factors together, I think, um, all interplay. And also, like, for example, I do one of the most powerful experiences in my life happened when I was six years old and I had um, spontaneous recall of a past life that resulted in a phobic and physical healing. But my point is, is that in that life, I died probably three to four years before this life began. And, and so I always think that because that life was so uh, close to this rebirth that I almost, it's hard to explain, but I feel like it could almost like just, just if I try hard enough, it's so close to me, I can almost grab and reach it. And I, and I almost feel like I brought part of the other side back with me, if that makes any sense, you know, um, doesn't oh. sound too scientific, but it's the best way I can describe <laughs> it. And I think, so to me, for me, it's all of those factors put together, um, I don't know how, you know, your interpretations or what your experience have been. That's what mine has been. That's what I was trying to get across in the book, you know, in a um, understandable way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you did a good job. I've, I've found this book very interesting as I've read it. Um, and I, I love all of the theories, but I also love everybody's little stories that yeah. are interspersed neatly in there. So if you know somebody starts reading it and they're super into experiences, they get those. And if somebody's super into theories, they get those too. And I think it's I think it's a really well balanced book that explains ideas well. Thank yeah. you. That was really important yeah. to us because Lynn and I, the co-author, we we look at ourselves. I've always looked at myself first and foremost, always as an experiencer. Mm -hmm. That said, when, you know, going to school and getting my PhD in metaphysics, it, you know, you start bringing in the science and, oh gosh, I think it was a year after I got my PhD, I was invited um, to be on the research team of the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Free Foundation. Um, and I was a little intimidated because um, I had heard that there were 
the world's most brilliant minds on this, you know, on the research committee and in the foundation. And I was sort of quaking and shaking in my boots because, <laughs> you know, I, Edgar Mitchell was a, a retired astronaut with a degree from a PhD in astrophysics from Harvard. And then Rudy Shield was on the board and he had worked in collaboration with Stephen Hawking on the theories of black holes. And I'm thinking, holy moly, I am an art major who got a PhD in <laughs> physics. I killed myself to pass biology one and I cried in algebra two. And oh, honey, I cried in algebra I, so many I times. I cried. Remember those equations? Like if a train is going oh. 15 miles an hour from, you know, and, and so here oh, I my am. God, word problems. Oh, so here I am. Okay. I, I was thrilled to be a part of this research team because I had the experiential right? That was already under my belt. I didn't really have the hard science. I've always believed it's important to marry the two. I worked really hard to get my degree, so I wanted to be taken seriously. I take I take my experiences very seriously, as I, I know you two do as well. And, and um, so I thought it was so important to marry the two, because to be honest, when I was working on the committee, most, well, most of the hardcore scientists had never had experiences ever. They were so left brained, you know, they were so <laughs> linear, sequential in their thinking. They would try to analyze everything. I'm not kidding. One of them had a headache one day, a migraine. He's trying to analyze why he had a migraine. And I was like, um, you know, be broken. <laughs> right. So, so, that it made me realize, okay, they're the people I'm working with, most of them are so left brained and concerned with theory. And they were trying to prove what us experiencers already know. And if you combine the two together, you have like the perfect marriage. That's why I thought it was so important to do this in the book. Um, there's a lot of books that are written by experiencers, especially like near-death experiencers. There mm -hmm. are a lot of books on quantum physics and quantum mechanics and that type of thing. Um, but I felt that since we were both experiencers and Lynn really much more than I, she has a heavy science background. You know, she has an MS in biology. If we could combine those two, you know, it would it would really work. So thank you. And yes, that was our our goal all along. Um, yeah, and I think working with that that uh, the group actually helped my left brain kick in a little bit and, and, and uh, function a little better. I hope your some of your right brainedness rubbed off on them too. I you know, you know I tried and tried. I became very good friends with with. Um, a guy on the um, the team, and he was a neuroscientist, very academic, very intellectual. And he kept saying to me, "Oh, Barbara, how do you have your experiences? I want to have an experience so experience so bad. How do you do it?" So I would tell him, "Well, you know, I could try Reiki on you, or you know, you could do this." I gave him many techniques. I suggested this and this, but he resisted. You know, he, he, he'd approach it and almost want to do it, almost want to do it. Oh, I'll call you for a ring. But then he'd pull back. He was fearful. I think he was so fearful of 
losing the control, you know, that intellectual yeah. scientific yeah. control. And it made me sad, but you know, that's, that's, you know, just how it was. So, um, Yes, I think I think if we can somehow combine the two, it's a really it's a really good balance. Um, but I do again have to say that I personally think that the um, experiential is is the most valuable because you can only know really right. We can conceptually you can know something right, but you can't have the full experience conceptually. You, you, you have to have it experientially. Yeah. You know, like, honestly, I mean, this is so basic an example, but, you know, giving birth. I mean, how do you, how do you try to understand that intellectually? You can't. Um, it's so, impossible. Yeah. So I guess we're a little, um, you know, uh, prejudiced towards the experiential side. <laughs> I hate to admit it, but you know what I'm saying? I mean, <laughs> you know, we are, 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 we, we veered a little towards that. Um, but, you know, I, I think the rest of the scientific community gets to be really adversarial towards the experiential experiential side. So I think experiencers are allowed to be a little bit gatekeepy. <laughs> Just a teeny like bit. That. That's a Just a little, finish. not too much. Yes. So yeah. You don't want to turn into a control freak. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I have known a couple of people who um, are intellectual and um, scientific and and very, very left brain logical um, people who have had experiences. Um, and sometimes, it, it's really, really amazing to watch them have these experiences. And then other times it's a train wreck and, and <laughs> you, just, you, you wish you were Superman because you can see that the bridge is out up ahead and the train is going and you just want to fly in front of the train and, and stop it. And you know that there's no way you can. So you basically hang out until they come up to you and go, wow, that was, oh, I mean, I mean, I'll just give a quick anecdote. A friend of mine was very into um, psychedelics and entheogens. And at my house one time, he thought it was a great idea to mix. Um, let's see. Well, he mixed opium and um acid and mushrooms oh boy and right? dextromethorphan <laughs> which okay dextromethorphan if you take enough of it is a dissociative anesthetic kind of like ketamine and uh he did all of these and he nearly stopped breathing at one point and he was in my house doing this and he did not ask permission or tell me beforehand like i thought he was just on acid like a normal person <laughs> um, and uh no he did that and he started really spacing out and so i babysat him and 
it was one of those train wreck moments. You know, I could literally see that train going and there wasn't a damn thing I could do to stop it because I didn't know what he had ingested. So I couldn't do any of the sensible things that one could do. Like, dude, you need to vomit right now and get rid of some of that. Um, mm, So I, you know, he came out of it the next morning and then he tells me all of the things he did. And I slapped him. I just called off and slapped him one. I was like, you did. Why did you not tell me? I, you could have died in my house and then it wouldn't have mattered to you because you'd be floating around up in the afterlife going, oh, damn, what did I do? And I would be here cleaning up your mess. <laughs> and, that's, and that's a heck of a mess wow. to leave a person with. That's not cool. You know, and he then he then he was like. You know, he was, he was, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I'm like, no, you shouldn't have. And by the way, I thought you were like intelligent, well-read, scientific, and, you know, a genius. I mean, you went to college when you were in high school. So, you know, what, what, what's that? <laughs> what is that? that? That's, that's nonsense. I mean, I basically turned into the comedian Lewis Black and started oh, no. yelling and waving my arms. <laughs> And it didn't teach him anything because he continued to do really goofy crap after that. But at least he didn't do it in my house <sighs> without telling me, you know. Um, but that's the kind of thing, you know, sometimes if you don't believe that something is real, you will do something really, uh, I don't want to say stupid, but risky, You'll do something really risky if you don't think that the consequence is so bad because it's not real. Oh, and right, so, right. That makes sense. Yeah. So if it's not real to you until you experience it, he's one of those people who can't learn from other people's experiences. He has to go jump off the cliff himself to see if his yeah. neck breaks when he lands yeah. in the water. You know, he's he has to dive off the cliff. <laughs> Sounds like uh, those Whereas, extreme sports people. You know what I mean? Those extreme risk yeah. takers or sports, right? Yes. Yeah. But but as a psychonaut. Yeah, but as a psychonaut <laughs> instead. So he he takes in all these substances and then oh, does things, and it's just like. And I'm not against. I mean, again, I am not against psychonauting at all. And when I was younger, I I was a psychonaut as well, um, and I had a lot of very interesting experiences then um some of which inform my life now and my art it's kind of obvious if you look at my art um but you know i never did it in a in a uh i didn't do it in a risky way i was always very careful about it and, you know, some of my friends were very party-like, so they were like, hey, let's drop acid. And I was like, mm, you know, no, <laughs> let's not. You know, I didn't do it on a, on a whim or for fun. It, it was always work in right. my case. Right, so you were careful. I always ended up talking to the universe. And, you know, they were having fun with lights and, and painting and colors and giggling and being silly. And, you know, here I was talking to the moon and the sky and the trees and the earth and 
having all of these experiences, but they're very tiring and, it, and it's like work. Yeah. It can be tiring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> having, ha no, being an experiencer can be tiring. Oh, it is. It and is. you know, like, you know what people say to me so often and they're like, um, oh my gosh, you're so lucky. I wish I could be like you. How can you do, how can you have these? And I say to them, well, you know, quite honestly, Number one, um, I think we all have the ability to experience within reason, right? Um, some of us are right. more highly attuned. I said, and secondly, it's a gift, but it's also a curse because I've had, it is difficult. You know, like I said, when I was a child, I had to navigate this all by myself. Um, it really affected my self-esteem and, and it had a lot of carry through throughout my life, Um I've been invalidated so many times, um, um, doubted. Yeah. I mean, not really doubted my sanity, but just thought there was something wrong with me. And, yeah. you know, it's just hard on so many levels. And also because I have had these amazing, wonderful, loving, almost like near death like experiences that just are so mind blowingly beautiful. But I've also had some very, which I do not include in the book, some very dark and very disturbing, terrifying experiences as well. So, you know, I, it's, it is, you're right. I didn't think of it in that way, Morgana, but that's a really good word. It can be tiring. And I don't think most people realize that, you know? Well, most people only see, they envision like the beautiful parts Right. Yeah. Like they 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 see the movie in their head, not like all they don't the words on the cutting room floor. Yeah. They don't <laughs> see they don't see the scary moments right. or the you know I have annoying I have clairvoyant dreams that are so annoying because they're never like important moments. They're Me just either. I dream like my life a couple weeks ahead of time in pieces and so I'll feel I'll start re realizing I've seen something before and I have a moment every single time where I'm like oh god is something terrible gonna happen that's and it's like, I no. think it's hard that's very hard and it's really stressful it <laughs> yeah. sounds terribly yeah. stressful because you, you never know if something bad's gonna happen or if this is just gonna be I just for no good reason dreamed about running out of juice Oh and this exact snapshot that I'm seeing right this moment, I dreamed about three weeks ago. And it's just, I it's snapshots. Or I don't know, maybe I just have a weird brain that tricks me with deja vus all the time. I don't know which it is, but it's it's really, it's sort of nerve wracking because you never know if this is going to be pointless or if something bad's going to happen. Yeah. When you get that when you recognize the snapshot right that sounds scary and like, yeah and it's you, really weird yeah and you know what else we're gonna do i think um and i i'm sure you two are as well very you know like a highly sensitive person uh, i'm a highly sensitive person and most people take that to mean oh you're oversensitive oh you overreact oh you're so dramatic that's just a small little piece and that's like a literal meaning right and and this yeah. is what i'm saying i think this brings in an extra piece of of um difficulty in navigating life but it also means we're not just 
sensitive as in we're empathic, because of course we're very empathic, but we're sensitive beyond, you know, the emotional realm. Like we're sensitive, uh, we might have allergies or we might have, um, you know, a genetic disorder. We're environmentally sensitive, we're uh, biologically sensitive. And like for me, I mean, I have so many experiences I know have way more than average, you know, health problems, um, allergies, uh, hospitalizations. I mean, I could go on and on. So it's it's not that we're just emotionally sensitive, very compassionate, very empathetic, but we are actually have like. Uh, physiological sensitivities. And on top of that, we, our own sensitive, heightened senses can act upon other things. Um, for example, um, there's a famous um, researcher, female researcher. I don't know if you've heard of her. Her name is PMH Atwater. Have you heard of her? She's a very famous near-death experience researcher. And she's such like a highly sensitive person. And the other part is we also tend to have a strong electromagnetic field, right? And so Mm -hmm. this is the other piece. We pick up on others' energies and carry them sometimes as if they're our own. Sometimes we can't tell when, you know, what am I feeling? Is it really what I'm feeling or is it? the person I passed in the grocery store two hours ago. And on the flip oh, side of that, and what PMH Atwater really has a problem with, and it's 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 pretty mind-blowing, actually. She um, is so sensitive that she has all of the, the things we already talked about, but the way that her sensitivity impacts equipment around her. She travels worldwide, um, attends conferences, a keynote speaker, all that. And she's actually been asked to not stand anywhere. They have to position her away from all of the electronic uh, equipment, from lighting. She's blown out lights. She's blown out amps. She's blown out recording systems. Um, It's a real problem for her. And I don't know about you, but I'm constantly having problems and I feel like it's my energy just because it's very strong. I feel like it's always interfering with my phone, my computer. I mean, lights flicker on and off in my house when I pass them. TV goes off randomly, goes on randomly. So if I'm, I might be sort of like going off on one of my abstract random tangents, but the point being is nope. As an experiencer, it, it's it, it's so many levels, I think, that interact to make it not only very interesting for us, but also very difficult because these things too, you know, it's all part of that, the, the difficult side that people don't see, right? The part that we have to walk mm-hmm. around with and try to, to, to process and, and find um, the balance, how to calm ourselves and quiet ourselves and not take on um, that extra burden of energy does that make sense yes i mean i when i read the chapter about highly sensitive people i was like check check yeah check 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 mark check mark check mark oh crap (laughs) is that what it is (laughs) me too 
<laughs> I got scared to take these tests because I would run into my husband going, oh my God, I was scoring charts on all of them. And I'm like, oh man, there is something wrong with me. I, I <laughs> There's so many underlines in that chapter. I'm yeah. just like, oh my God. Yeah. My boyfriend came in and he was like, why are you oh my godding so much? And I'm like, you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> just, just walk on. Play video walk games, on. honey. <laughs> Go get a snack. Don't don't talk to me right now. Um, yeah. I did fill out that questionnaire that you cited too. That I'm, and I'm going to send it in. Um, you did. Researchers still doing it. Yes, oh, I printed great. it off and I printed mom a copy. Oh, good. Um, yeah. I haven't gotten my copy yet, but I, I'll pick it up tomorrow. I I was spurred to take all the tests. <laughs> But do you know something, Morgana? I, I have two in, and um, on a lot of the, well, especially because, you know, I've, I've been on near-death um, research websites a lot, but there are a lot of spiritually transformative websites as well um, that post um, a lot of ongoing research and asking for research participants. I know that Ooh. one of my friends, this has now since closed. I wish I had known about it earlier, but John Hopkins about, oh, maybe nine months ago, closed a the first of its kind for them research study on all types of anomalous um, phenomena. And they were Ooh. asking for participants worldwide had I known about that. You know, but there are many universities, um, many research facilities that are asking. So if, you know, there are a lot of websites in the book. There's the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. There's several others. And if you go on them, if you're interested or anybody you know is interested, they do post ongoing, uh, you know, um, research studies and asking for participants. That yeah, that is fun. that is exciting, and it's a it's an interesting thought. Um, I know for electromagnetic nonsense, I am so hard on mechanical things and electronic things. It's not even funny. Um, you kill cars. Yeah, you kill cars. I I kill um, watches. Um, and that runs in my family. Apparently. Yeah. There's a reason I don't wear watches. Yeah. Um, um, uh, laptops, phones, computers, all kinds of things. But you know, what's interesting is I, I also have the ability sometimes to do it in a beneficial way. Um, when I was in college the first time around, when I was 17 years old, Back in 1980, I was a journalism student and it was so long ago that, that desktop computers didn't exist. Hey, we listen, had... I think I'm older than you. <laughs> a little bit, maybe, yeah. But we had video display terminals that looked like giant TV sets sitting on our desks. Yeah. And then they all connected to a big mainframe in the oh, back. I remember mainframes. I was never, I was not allowed to go near that mainframe ever. Like, ever. I stepped in there once and screwed it up and in a very dramatic fashion. And the lady who was in charge of it, her name was Bubba. <laughs> Actually, her name was Dorothy, but she hated the name Dorothy, so she went by Bubba. Bubba, like, pointed at the door and growled at me. 
I don't even think she said words, but I knew what she meant and it was get the hell out. And I did. And she could fix things so that our entire newspaper didn't go, you know, up in smoke. But um, what I found, though, is the video display terminals occasionally, some of them particularly, there was about three or four of them that would just, you know, you'd be typing away, typing your your news story, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden it would just turn off. It would just go dim. And then sometimes it would it would eat your story. You wouldn't be able to get it back. And um, I found out that I could just put my hands on them sometimes and just calm myself and, and then give it a, a, a tap, like with both hands on either side in a specific spot. Each spot on each one was a little bit different and I had to play with it and whack it and it would come back and almost always they would have the story most of it at least would come back. There might be a paragraph missing or something. I love that so, you did computer Reiki healing. I I, I think essentially well, <laughs> what what I, I always did the televangelist hail and then whack it, you know, because that made it look good. Um, <laughs> say Satan. You will be hailed, you know, out demons. And uh, yeah, the professors at first were like, oh man, she's just screwing around. But then they'd start, hey, my computer. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Okay, I'm coming. You know, <laughs> I'll come and heal it for you. And, you know, if I did it without the voice after a while, they'd be like, well, don't you have to tell the demons to get out? I'm like, that's just, for, that's just theatrical because it makes you all laugh. But if you, if you really feel the need for that, you know, I'll do it. But, you know, I could do that for beneficial purposes sometimes and then other times I just destroy stuff. You just okay. destroy stuff lately. Purchasing that this amazing piece that you did and I know I don't want to get off track but oh my god I I tell you this all the time I am so blown away by your artwork and you know I was an art major oh, and you. I I appreciate you know I'm somewhat selective it's not like I you know impressed by everything I see but it's I it's amazing it just I don't know it really resonates with me and it's it's very unusual it's very unique you're very gifted Morgana you're gonna have to show me some of your things if you feel comfortable oh yeah sharing uh, okay. Sure. If okay. mom quit recording and I'll dig okay, one I'll out. Quit recording. <laughs> no I'm, I'm literally next to my art desk Sorry, I got us off topic. It's okay. As Greg Bishop says, everything should be off topic. <laughs> so, what do you think the relationship? Because I, I really enjoyed this part of your book. You know, when you were explaining the not quite the science of consciousness, but the consciousness and the connections between consciousnesses and one of those consciences why can't i speak consciousnesses should have a capital c because <laughs> like i think of it as the universal consciousness and then our little consciousnesses yeah, and how there is a connection between exactly. them sorry that was very garbled no it you know i have to tell you guys it and, and i'm no actually it is that's that was like that's my point that i try to make and and it is so difficult 
to describe these things scientifically, you know, we were talking about before, because, you know, cutting edge science and describing consciousness is all about quantum physics. And, you know, that's so hard to wrap your head again around and, and a little diversion here, but that was the hardest class I had to take in getting my PhD. I mean, I was telling you the furthest I got in math was algebra two and I spent most of the year crying. And, and so here I am, you know, like just, loser in science and math. And I had to take uh, quantum physics and I almost died. And I ran out. And um, first thing I did after having a panic attack is I went on Amazon and I ordered, you know, the dummy series. I ordered quantum yep. physics for dummies. And I was so excited to get it. So I'm like, yes, 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 this is going to help me in class. I'm going to, I'm going to be stellar. I'm going to cut it. I'm going to make it. I opened up the first page when I got it and I almost started crying again because I barely oh. understood it. So Lynn, being a scientist, you know, could probably give you a more scientific um, explanation. But I do an experience, you know, more of an experiential. And, and basically, yes, I mean, as we know, like nuts and bolts science, quote, traditional science, you know, as you're well familiar with, you know, it just exposes that, exposes that. Consciousness is brain-based, right? Uh, when mm -hmm. you die, your brain dies. Consciousness ceases to exist. But, uh, you know, when you've, we've had, we collectively have had these experiences since we were tiny little children. Um, and when you have these, you realize that your consciousness isn't confined to your body, to your organic brain, to time and space. It can be everywhere at once it can be in the past as in your case it can be in the future it can be in all time simultaneously so as as a small child i navigated life understanding this to some degree and as i got older it made sense and it all came together for me and i began to look at it as our brain is a receiver of consciousness, right? Like the TV or any electronic, you know, piece of equipment is a receiver. I mean, turn off the TV, yeah. the frequencies don't die. You know, my satellite dish didn't die. It's just that it's not available at that moment. Um, and, and so this is what, you know, cutting edge quantum physicists are trying to prove. I mean, how do you prove consciousness? That's why it's, they call it the hard question of consciousness. How do you prove it? I, will it ever be able to be provable 100%? I don't know. I can't answer that question. It is to me because I've lived it. Um, so I just, to me, the easiest way to understand it is our brain is a receiver, um, which enables us to experience uh, simultaneously, live simultaneously in our own physical body and different space-time dimensions. And our physical body actually is very limiting because, you know, it, it keeps us trapped, our consciousness trapped more than <laughs> we'd like. Uh, I hope that answers it. It does. Thank you for answering well my, my somewhat clumsy question. <laughs> it's not clumsy. Actually, Consciousness is a difficult question to, to ask. I think it's... I it's, just thought of an even, even better analogy than a TV set because we can exchange information. We don't just receive in, information from the cosmic consciousness or the 
the big C, the big consciousness, we can also send it. So, and the only reason I thought of this is because I talked about fixing the video display terminals in the newsroom. It's like the old mainframe computers that took up an entire room. That's the big cosmic consciousness. That's the big C. And then we are like the video display terminals. We receive information from the big consciousness, but we can also send it back. Because, of course, what we typed on those individual terminals and keyboards went back to the mainframe. So it moved back and forth. It wasn't just you're receiving the, the television signal, but you can't you know, send it back. It's more like the Internet is now. You can receive right. the signal and then send information in a packet back. I never would have thought of that, though, if I hadn't been talking about hailing the thing. <laughs> yeah, I am so glad you so said that because, I, yes, I'm totally aware of that. And my explanation wasn't as comprehensive of that. And that's a great analogy. So you can use that next time. You can have that. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah, it. I think it'll, it'll, it might only work for people who are old enough to remember mainframes <laughs> and video display terminals. So it might not be as great as I thought it was. Oh, it's, it's, um, it's good. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's, that's a, a way to look at it there too. And now I'm off thinking, you know, about karma and the whole idea that you keep becoming reincarnated to keep learning more things. And then you go back to the big C cosmic consciousness with what you've learned in each life. And now I'm just off in some strange mystical rabbit hole. <laughs> no, you're not. That's a good rabbit hole. No, you're not. Because I have to tell you, you know, people ask me what the most impactful experience that I've ever had. And, and I'll say bar none, it's been my past life memories. And um, they've made a gigantic impact on my life for the very reasons you're talking about. I've always been fascinated by them. I have had more, um, my, most of my experiences, I say, if you had to say, well, what is the majority of your experiences? They have been past life, but they've been spontaneous past lives while I'm fully conscious. Um, I've actually had a shared past life with my daughter and a friend while I was doing Reiki on her. Um, and I've verified a part of one of them. Uh, so that that's like a very powerful thing for me, Morgana, and it is not a rabbit hole. You know, it's um, and you know what? Why it's so powerful to me because when I have them, not only am I fully conscious and talking about, you know, that, that mainframe, I'm existing simultaneously, not only in my body, I'm aware of me. Like, for example, I hate to say the car again, because, you know, okay, drivers stand in my way. But <laughs> I actually was driving um, to the gym one day and I was at, at you know, a light, uh, it was red. And all of a sudden, the next thing I knew, I was having a past life experience, you know, recall. And I was aware I was Barbara. I was aware I was, you know, I'm sitting on the seat of my car. I think I had the, 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 you know, seat was heated. I had the heat on so I could feel that. Um, I was aware, you know, I was very aware of my physical body and the fact that I was Barbara. But then I not only envisioned 
this past scene, what happens to me is, so I, it's, it's multidimensional. I'm me being aware of my own physicality in the present, that I'm rooted in the present. I'm seeing the past, like, a, a, you know, like you're watching a documentary or a TV show. Yeah. But the third piece is I actually simultaneously become that person in that past life. And all three of these things are happening at once, yet they make perfect sense. And as I become the person in that body, I'm also feeling every emotion that person is feeling. I am seeing what they're seeing through their eyes. I am thinking their thoughts. I am feeling what they are touching. So that's why these past lives, to me, the whole idea of this and reincarnate, it's so powerful because I don't even know how many dimensions it is happening in, but it they are so profound. And that just goes to exemplify the fact that, you know, we can exist multi multi-dimensionally. Time and space have no restrictions. And and I lose all sense of time when this happens. You know, I don't know if if I'm gone, so to speak, for, you know, two minutes or is it 30 seconds? Time just disappears. And and so that's why I always say these are my most powerful experiences because they are absolutely multidimensional. They are spot on with like historical accuracy. I, I used to have them when I was a small child. I didn't know anything about, you know, historical dress or historical cars or what homes looked like or how right. people talked, you know, their quaint verbiage. Um, and and I absolutely always believed in them. I always believed in reincarnation. I always believed exactly what you just verbalized, you know. And um, so for me, it's um, a big piece of the, consciousness puzzle so to speak yeah well that's awesome and really cool (laughs) i wonder if you're actually having past life recollection or if they're simultaneous lives which you know i have to go and make everything more complicated um but whatever you do um it could be that our idea of past present and future is just how our little C consciousnesses can wrap our heads around it. That's the only way we can understand it, but it could all be happening at the same time. Yes. And that, that is a, a separate piece. And, um, and I do agree with you and that, but at the same time, I, it, it's almost that concept alone just blows my mind, even though I, I embrace it. And I, think there's a lot of validity to it i think for most people that would they would just look what <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay yeah. Um, let's call the the doctors at the hospital with the white coat. Um, <laughs> let's get her out of here um but no i i absolutely read that i believe it i've i've sort of experienced it but that brings it, like you said, you know, Morgan, that brings it to a whole a really complex level. But it's, it's, um, it's fascinating, isn't it? Have either of you ever had this type of experience? Um, I have had a couple of things that I can't explain. Um, I have a memory 
of being held by my father to a window that had shutters that swung outward. And we were looking out across the street. We were on a second floor. We were looking out across the street um, at a bird's nest that was on top of a chimney. And there were storks in it. And he was showing me that the storks had come back. And the female stork was sitting on her nest and soon the eggs would hatch. Um, the buildings were stone and brick. Um, they, there were no cars. Um, there were horses down below because I could hear their hooves with the metal horseshoes clomping on the cobblestones. Um, and it was very much my father from this life. It, it even kind of looked like him, but, uh, I, I, I thought for a long time that I had seen a movie as a little kid and had conflated it because of course, you know, up until the age of like four or five, what you experience on a television screen or a movie screen is exactly like reality to you. Right. So you don't know the difference. Um, for the longest time I thought, and I looked for, you know, a movie set in, I don't know, between the 17th to the 19th century Germany or um, the Netherlands or Denmark. Those are the three places that I have the feeling that that's where that was. And I can't find anything. I don't think I saw a movie with that. It was in color. I could smell. Um, <laughs> I could smell horse poop from you know the street down below, and uh, but I could also smell spring on the air and and wood smoke. So I, I kind of don't think it was it was a uh, movie. If, if anything, it was a dream, but it, it was surely multisensory and it was really, really interesting. And I even asked my dad, I'm like, dad, is there, cause he's seen every movie in the world, every old movie, especially. And he knows every character actor's name in every black and white movie. So, you know, I figured if we had actually seen such a film that he would know. Right. And he was like, I've never seen anything with a scene like that looking out a window uh, a father and child he's like it did that no no and i was like okay well that's that's good to know thank you <laughs> he's like why are you asking oh no i must have had a dream i don't know yeah well, nothing, nothing, nothing when you have these experiences there are your, your senses are greatly heightened right and and i also think mm -hmm. i don't know if you had this with yours, but it's the omnidirectional vision that Kenneth Ring talks about with near-death experiencers. I mean, I was, again, in my physical yeah. body, but when I'm watching the scene, I'm seeing it from, you know, not just the vision we as humans have, but I'm seeing it from above, from below, you know, from beyond right. my peripheral vision. And because I have no, in, in waking life, I don't know how to do that. I'm, I'm incapable of knowing what that is. So I think that's another, you know, little, um, Hey, this is real. Um, you know, so I would definitely, yeah. definitely think that that is. Um, and that's one of the weird things about that particular 
experience is I was both looking out the window and I was aware of being held by my father in his arms because I was very small in the, in the experience. And I had my hands on the windowsill so I could feel the, the brick and the stone and the wood that was on the windowsill, all of that. But at the same time, I could see us from behind us. Like I could, like I was seeing from a third person view from behind us. So I could see his back and I could see my head sort of, you know, peeping up over his shoulder, but facing outward. And I could see the storks both from my perspective, looking out the window and then the perspective from behind looking past the two people at the window, you know, into the, into the sky and the street and the, the roof across the street and could see the storks there. So it was like, I was two separate people, but then I could, you know, I didn't really see the room per se, but outside on the street, I could kind of see pretty much everything. If, you know, I looked at it, it was weird. So that thing has been in, in me for ever since I was a little kid, really little kid. So I don't know what that is. I I've decided it was probably some past life thing. To um, me, it's, you know, it sounds like, especially because of the, the multidimensional way you saw it as did I, because everybody that I know that has described a past life, they describe it. Some people have more layers, I guess, more layers of, um, uh, sensory, um, you know, like they'll, you're describing, you're sort of like double, right? You're seeing it in a, yeah, in a double vision. Correct. And some people will have like it in a triple or a quadruple vision, but everybody that has them tends to describe them in that way. So I think it's very, a, a valid, you know, I don't think it's, it's, it's anything conflated or, or, you know, um, imaginary or whatever. Um, I think it's very real. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I was kind of disappointed. I wasn't a, a priestess from the Island of Babylon in a past life, but <laughs> not everybody gets to be. Those. I was told I was a priestess in, um, in the Stonehenge era. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> Sounds cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I was, uh, when I owned a metaphysical bookstore in Athens, it was the nineties. And so it was very much part of the uh, mists of Avalon time. And there's so many, so many priestesses. The, the whole island probably would have sank under the <laughs> because there were so many of them. I don't know that they could move. They would take up every square inch of the island. I don't well, know it's, it was a magic there. island. It was no, a magical was island. It was a TARDIS. It wasn't an island. It was bigger on the inside. That's what it was. That explains it. I understand now. <laughs> all Doctor Who's fault. Speaking of, of interdimensional interdimensionality, um, yeah, <laughs> I have never had a past life experience. I've had a lot of other strange things, but I have never had a spontaneous recall of what might be a past life. Weird dreams, yes. Out of body experience, yes. UFOs, seen UFOs, yes. But 
never a near-death experience or a past life memory. Well, the reason I wrote about near-death experiences for my um, dissertation, everybody assumes I had one, okay? And that's why I wrote about it. But that's exactly why I wrote about it, because I hadn't had one. I've had so many diverse experiences um, that I wanted to study something that I wasn't experientially, mm. you know, familiar with. But, and, I, and, and I'm sure if you, you know, when you think about your experiences, there are so many components of other experiences that are the same that near-death experiences yeah. go through, right? I mean, telepathic communication, um, seeing light beings, you know, um, feeling uh, unconditional love surrounding us, healing on any type of level you know, uh, physical, phobic, emotional, um, heightened sensory, you know, every, every sense is heightened greatly, omnidirectional vision. There's just so many components. And so I was so fascinated. That's one of the things that drew me to it. I'm like, wait a minute. Here I picked, you know, I'm picking near-death experiences. The more I researched and researched, I researched, I'm like, you know what? all of these experiences are spiritually transformative, right? Or they're definitely an eye opener on some level. They change us on some, from, from a very uh, low level to an astronomically impactful level, right? And, and I thought, you know, they really are, it's like an umbrella, right? It's, it's like they all are part of the same like a tree with different branches, right? And and that's that's sort of what started this book, the idea planted the seed for this book, even though, you know, no, I haven't had a near-death experience, but I've had so many of the same components. How is that possible? How is that possible? Well, it's right. possible if consciousness isn't local. And, um, and so, yeah, I think if people that have experiences, you know, take a little time and think, oh, gee, you know, what are there common themes between them? It's surprising how many you can think of. You know, I don't know, uh, you know, Barbara Morgana, if you've ever thought about that. But once I started thinking about that, I was like, wow, you know, there are a lot of common commonalities here. You know, it was kind of mind blowing for me. I had never thought about it. I I came to sort of that thought mode um, in kind of sideways by like comparative folklore. <laughs> no, where, that makes sense. And then from there, I sort of came to the, there's everything is somehow connected. And then it wasn't until recently like really since we've been doing the podcast and I've been reading and talking to so many different people and hearing everybody else's experiences and their theories and ideas that I've really come to a point where I think that that idea has taken firmly taken root in my brain and now I'm I'm speaking of trees now I've got this whole tree that's trying to like grow through and flower with new ideas and I can't tell which ones are good ideas and which ones are bad ideas but I'm not really like trying to prune the tree yet. <laughs> no, that that's a good analogy. Yeah. It totally resonates with me. You know, I I think some of my first 
experiences with other people having experiences was when, well, now when I was a child, I heard my grandmother would tell us her precognitive dreams. Um, and she did dream twice of important things. And so I heard about that. I heard about my aunt's experiences and she had things like time slips happen. She had, um, she saw apparitional people who then, you know, dissolved in front of her eyes. So clearly she either was in a time slip or she was looking into another dimension or something, or those were ghosts or, you know, whatever explanation. And she once was out in the wilderness with a boyfriend in the middle of a state forest at night. And she said she heard the most incredible music coming. She couldn't tell what was coming from. It was coming from everywhere around her. And, and they're, they're, I mean, on a mountain, you know, with trees, huge trees and next to a waterfall and over the sound of the waterfall, she could hear singing. And she was like, Oh, I wonder if there's a, a church somewhere nearby and the choir's practicing. That was her thought. Um, and she, she said, you know, I wonder what that, that piece is. I've, I've never heard it. She, she was in church choirs most of her life. And, you know, she just gets completely taken up by this music. She just is listening to it and looking up at the stars in the sky. And she's just, you know, I think she was having an ecstatic moment. I, I really think that's what was going on. She couldn't really describe it well. But her boyfriend apparently, you know, was like, hey, come on, let's keep walking. And she was like, I want to listen to the music. Just wait. And he was like, what music? And she was like, the singing. And he was like, there is no singing. You know, so I grew up hearing that. But the first time that I had peers that had experiences that's when I started noticing things that were alike. And then I just sort of followed those threads. And um, one of my friends and I, we did um, psi tests at school, in middle school. Um, we did um, predictive tests with cards. We didn't have Zener cards because they didn't exist in West Virginia at that time. Um, and we didn't make any because we knew that they would be marked but on the outside, there'd be no way you could keep them from, because we'd be hand making them. So it, it, it would have given too much information. So we used red and black of regular playing cards and the kids were supposed to guess red or black as, as we did it. And we, we tested a bunch of kids and so long as they were interested in it and thought it was a game, they did very, very well. And they tested above um, average very frequently. If they got bored, they'd start testing, you know, at average and then below average. And then sometimes they would, if they were particularly skeptical, they would test way below average, which is also indicative. It's just indicative of negative psi, which is where you don't believe in it so much that your brain just goes, fine, we're going to prove that it doesn't exist now and forever. And there you go. <laughs> and, you know, when you get like out of 50, you should get 25 red and 25 black if you have 25 red cards and 25 black cards in your in your deck and you should guess 25 if if you do that's 
you know, 50, 50. And if you guess only five of them, right, that's as indicative as getting say, you know, 48 or 49, right. So I started thinking about that early, but it wasn't until I started reading about near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences and a lot of these bigger experiences that I really started going, oh, you know, this is all a lot of the same thing over and over. And then I, I studied shamanic practice, practice and went, oh, yeah, this is a lot the same. <laughs> I have okay, to tell gonna... you, the fact that you're, the fact that you're um, doing psi experiments when you're that young that alone is fascinating. Yeah, we were weird people. I mean, weird. I think. I think that's brilliant. I mean, I would have never thought to do that at that age. That that is part of my INTJ thing. If we're going to talk about Myers Briggs, it's that T part. It's that thinking part. It's that analysis. Because if my math scores had been better, I would have been a scientist. But my math scores said no, you won't. Well, they had to be better than mine. They had to be better than mine. So. You you actually got further in math than I did, Barbara. I, I yeah. took algebra one eight times. Oh boy! I well, felt I have so to, bad for you. I have baby. to tell you, my mom was a help. statistician. Okay. And, oh. and speaking about yes, she was one of these brilliant ones that went to to NYU. At when she was still in uh, 16, okay, graduated in three years, mm. and she was the top, I forgot what's they called, the um, summa cum laude, whatever, number one summa in her laude, class yeah. of like 2,000 people, this math genius, and even with her tutoring, and that she wasn't, she, we got along very well with the tutoring, that part was, that part was good, um, I would still sit there and sob and cry and run to my room and <laughs> fall to pieces, <laughs> Yeah, I'm very impressed that you could have come up with that, that test. Now, we did have math teachers helping us come up with the statistics, but still, they were amazed that we wanted to even try to do something like that. Oh, and then we had the gall to enter it into a science fair. And that was fun. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and how did you do? Because that's that's just blows my mind. Um we didn't win because the Rocket Boys won, not not the famous Rocket Boys uh, from that ended up in NASA, but there were boys who had built rockets, and, and so they won. But that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> the Rocket Guys won, and the person who, um, what was it they did with frogs? They did something to frogs, but I don't remember what it was. I don't remember. It was something really brilliant, but kind of gross. <laughs> I don't remember what it was. I know I was worried about the poor frogs. So it, that it is that probably... is like half of science, right there. Really brilliant, but kind of gross. Yeah, you're so right, true. Morgana. That is so perfect. You've come up with some gems. Let me tell you. <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you for being with us, Barbara. Um, tell the listeners about your book a little bit so they know where they can find it and what it's about. 
Yes, the name of our book is Convergence, the Interconnection of Extraordinary Experiences. It's for sale on Amazon and Kindle. It's also for sale Barnes and Nobles and their um, ebook, which is Book Nook. It's also for sale at the Book Depository. And we also have a website, which we're actually very active on, and I write a weekly blog. And that website is extraordinaryexperiences.org. Um, it's our blog and combo website. So if you could check that out, that would be great. And basically, our book is what we've been talking about all night. It's about experiences, um, how all experiences, regardless of the modality or the type of experience, share certain commonalities that these experiences occur beyond space and time and are non-local and um, origin. And what we really want to emphasize, because what people ask Lynn and I all the time is, I've had these experiences. Am I crazy? Am I nuts? And in the book, we spend a lot of time discussing, no, you're not crazy. You're unique. We're, people like us are wired differently. We come into the world differently. Just because we're having an experience that other people may not believe or accept doesn't mean it's not real. So own your experiences. Try to reframe your outlook to embrace yourselves and your uniqueness. And, and um, there are lots and lots of links for support, support groups, for the research. And we also want to emphasize there are always like-minded other people out there that you can connect with easily. And sometimes these like-minded people can become your family. When your own family may not accept you, it's wonderful to know that in this day and age. It's a great thing. So thank you so much for having me on the show. I've really enjoyed this. Thank, thank you so you much for, for coming. coming on. Thank you so much. It was great to talk with you. And I, I really hope that we get a few more readers to uh, pick up your book because it, it is really, really interesting and fascinating to read. Thank you so much. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you.